wow. Um, and by the way, I want to just uh, look forward as well and make sure I'm, I share this, that we, after I shared a couple of weeks, two or three weeks back, asking some questions about Christmas is, you know, falling on a Sunday. So our plan this year is that on Christmas Eve, Saturday the 24th, we're going to be sharing a Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock, okay? We're going to try to send out reminders about this, but um, it's, it's uh, you know, an unusual time for most of us to be gathering together, so um, I won't make wisecracks about us being like, you know, when I grew up, the Catholics went to church on Saturday night. I won't make that wisecrack, but I just did, didn't I? Anyway, 5 o'clock Saturday night, Christmas Eve, we'll be gathered here, Okay. The next day on Sunday morning, I'll be with my family. I don't know where you'll be. No, we want you to be with your family. That's what you, we want to free that up for, for everybody to be together. All right, Matthew 11, 2 to 11. So everybody got that? Christmas Eve, we'll be here at what time? 5 o'clock. All right, on Sunday the 25th, we will not be here. All right, I want to begin verse 2. Now, when John, uh, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and uh, or what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. At these, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Now, they're beginning to pull away, and Jesus now continues speaking, but now he's speaking past them just a little bit, but in their hearing. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaking in the wind? But what did you go out to see? Uh, a man dressed up in, in fine clothes. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, the one who is more than a prophet, this is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your, uh, prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Lord, I, I believe you that you'd speak to our hearts today, and I trust you, Lord, for that. So, Lord, it's the work of your spirit that we believe for a divine transaction to speak to our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Charles was a young man of six years old when his parents separated and abandoned him. And as a result, he became a ward of the court. But in those days, he wasn't just cared for in those days he was he was ordered by the court to work as a farmhand in Michigan as an indentured servant 
and under that agreement, he would work for his room and board until he was 21. He had three months a year that he was allowed to have schooling. The rest of the time, he was bound out to perform farm chores. When Charles was 12, he decided he'd had enough of that kind of life, and he ran away, and he became a farmhand, first in Grand Blanc, Michigan, working for $8 a month. Later in Mount Morris, he got a big pay raise, up to $12 a month. And it was on the farm that he, he learned the skill of carpentry and, and, some, and some machining skills. In fact, so much so that he formed a company that pressed hay. And while he, after he'd formed that company and he was pressing hay on a nearby farm, he met his future wife, Jessie. Now, she had poor health, and so now it was 1890, and they decided to move to the next biggest town, Flint. And in Flint, Charles found a job and was hired by a man named William Durant of the Flint Road Cart Company, later to become the Durant-Dort Carriage Company, the largest carriage company in the world. Charles was hired in 1890 for $1 a day to stuff the cushions of the carts. The day that Durant hired Charles, who could have ever imagined? Here's a young lad. He's taken a job. And it was really kind of a benevolent act that this man, William Durant, the owner of the largest carriage wagon maker in the world, allowed this young man an opportunity to work for him because, after all, in Flint, Michigan, he was considered likely the greatest man in the region. But within six months, that young lad was promoted to be superintendent of the factory. Ten years, uh, barely ten years had gone by, and he became vice president and general manager of Durant Dort Carriage Company. But it was in 1897 that Charles Nash had a chance to drive an automobile. And Charles became incredibly intrigued by its commercial possibilities and, in fact, later became highly influential in helping to form a whole new company. He became its first CEO of that company called General Motors. Now, who would have thought in 1890 anyone could have been greater than William Durant? Walked down the street and people knew who he was. What an opportunity to work for that man. And yet, 
the young lad who came to work for him winds up becoming someone far greater, having far more influence, so much so that he actually forms his own car company and owns it. In 1890, William Durant had no idea that the largest carriage company in the world was soon, soon to become nothing, nothing but an empty shell, nothing but a memory. Everything's about to change. The buildings are emptied, unneeded tools for an unwanted product, and it was literally months away. And the boy on the line becomes the CEO. In our text, in Matthew 11, there's several things here I'm hoping that we'll capture today, but we find John no longer in the wilderness like we looked at last week, but today he's in Herod's prison. And interestingly, John has been in Herod's prison long enough that that something has begun to bother him. He sends his friends to ask Jesus an almost startling question, especially coming from John. This is John, the bold cousin of Jesus, who'd come seemingly out of the caves in the wilderness, this, this wild-haired man who came out preaching a gospel of repentance, saying, heaven is near. And when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All of Jerusalem had come out to hear him. Crowds were coming around about. He's baptizing men and women in the Jordan River. But now in Matthew 11, we meet John in a dark, dank, humid prison cell. And it, it appears that the walls of that cell are now beginning to close in on John, on his, even his imagination. He's no longer confident, certain John, the student of the Scriptures whose mind's imagination was captured by this reality, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He'd been captured by the prophet Isaiah, and he, he knew for certain this was the one. He thought of passages like Isaiah 35, Zion's happy future. And this man who was certain that he saw the Lamb of God sends his friends to go and speak to his cousin because his friends came and reported to him. You know, by now he's given his life and he's sitting in Herod's prison and he's waiting for the moment coronation. Trumpets will sound. Everything's going to change. Rome will be removed. And his friends say, what's, what's he saying now? I, I prepared the way. What, what, what's he talking about? Well, John We heard him say, if someone hits you, turn your other cheek for them to hit the other side. Well, 
what, what did you hear? Well, John, he said, if somebody, Sunday conscripts you, see something that the Romans could do, just come and take advantage of the local population. I'm tired of carrying my stuff. You carry it for the next mile. They were conscripted as subjects of Rome and forced to do it. He, he said, what? He said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two. If, if someone sues you, wants to take something from you, just, just your cloak, give them your tunic as well. And, and John, that's not all. I, I haven't really heard him talking about a government. I, all I hear him talking about is death. He's, he's, he's all the way back as we're heading to Jerusalem. The only thing, he, he's never talked about any politics. He just talks about death. And the walls are closing in on John. In his mind, in his heart, did I, did I miss something? I, I thought I had these verses memorized. I was sure he was the one. Go, go ask him. Are you the one or do we, do we look for somebody else? Now, Before we get harsh on John, I want us to remember, even as, as weak as that illustration is, you, you think about William Durant in 1890, headlights, traffic lights, turn signals. What? What are those? William, everything's about to change. He had no imagination. Here's John, and he's read the verses in the book of Isaiah, but he has no imagination for what the kingdom looks like. The only thing he has is a kingdom that surrounds him, that's wielded in power and might. But you see, come to think of it, John probably isn't the only one who has trouble confining God to the prison of our expectations I read this last week one pastor who, who gave a litany, and I, I'm just going to share them the way he wrote them because I could identify with just about every one of them. I wonder, I wonder if our expectations might sound a little bit like this. I, 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 thought, Jesus, I thought Jesus would give me the answer. Instead, he calls me into question. I thought he would make my life easier. Instead, he asked me to take up a cross and follow him. I thought he would give me security and safety. Instead, he asked me to live vulnerably. I thought he would take care of the world's needs. Instead, he said, you give them something to eat. I thought he would give me whatever I ask for. Instead, he says, pray like this. Our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. I thought he would be on my side. Instead, he said, love your enemy. 
pray for those who persecute you. I thought he would prevent death. Instead, he asked, do you believe in the resurrection? I thought he would heal my relationships. Instead, he asked me to forgive. Not just seven times, 70 times seven. I I thought he would make me number one. Instead, he says, be a servant of all. I thought he would make me successful. Instead, he asks if that's the treasure to which I want to give my heart. I I thought he would show up in spectacular ways. Instead, Instead, he looks like the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the naked, the homeless, the stranger. I thought he would bring some magic into my life and world. Instead, he gives me the work of repentance. I thought he would take care of everything. Instead, he believes that I will do greater things than him. See, while we might word it differently, I've heard complaints like this in my own heart and from the lips of many. When the walls of the expectations of our mind and our heart begin to close in. And and here's what doesn't help us. Most of us have social cues that we have been well-versed in. It's in black and white or in color, whichever version of the movie you're watching. There is good and there is evil, and good vanquishes the evil, right? Done. Movie over. That was a good movie. And we expect Jesus to exercise the hero move. And when we really begin to unpack the gospel, that isn't what he did. See, the surprising truth of Jesus is he reveals quite the opposite. Uh, In fact, when when John's friends come and they say, um, John, ask us to ask you. Are you the are, are you are you the one? Here's a couple things I want us not to miss. One is this. He doesn't really answer the question about kingship. But he invites them to discern the kingdom. That's so important. Because here's here's what I want. This is this is theologically so deep and important. Especially for us you know Everybody in the room and on the call, we've all grown up in the atmosphere of Western um, uh, exceptionalism, and and so oftentimes we've equated the kingdom of God to the same thing. So we we think His kingdom is discerned by strength and accomplishment. And John, Jesus says to John's friends, "Hey." It, it, Tell them what you've seen. And, and by the way, meaning this, that my kingship is discerned by my presence to make whole 
rather than the power to rule over. Okay? This is pivotal to, to discerning the kingdom of God. Beloved, the arrival of God's kingdom transcends. It always does. It transcends the darkest and most delayed places and spaces. And what it reveals is the beauty of God, the goodness of God, and the truth of God. In one word, you know, the word that we often use here is the word love. God is love. It's revealing that God is revealing beauty. Those transcendent truths is the revelation of the kingdom. So Jesus doesn't say, ah, yeah, you're right, I am the king. Just look out, Coronation Day is coming. He said, no, no, discern that this is what the kingdom is about. It's about revealing the, the transcendent reality to make men and women's lives whole. It's revealing beauty, goodness, and truth. A kingdom that's not limited or contained by our expectations or measured by our ideas of distance or delay, but it reveals everything's changed. And the life of heaven has come to earth. And, beloved, that's good news. John's in Herod's prison. Following his bold preaching. Preaching of repentance. And I love, oh, man, that was such a good word last week. You know, repent because, not because of hell, but because heaven is here. So in prison, John, John hears about these works, and he's confronted by his own expectations and, and here's what I want us to see. I, I went through that whole litany here a little while ago. He's in Herod's prison physically, but theologically, where is he? Theologically, he's in Genesis 3. He's at the place that all of us find ourselves at one point or another, hearing the whispers of hell. And what are those whispers repeating again and again? What started with Adam and Eve? You are not enough. And are you really sure God is good? He's holding out. If you eat this fruit, then you'll be like God. And the stunning part of that accusation and that invitation is they already were made in the image of God. And the whispers of hell, oh, beloved, the whispers of hell or the proclamation of heaven. Oh, goodness, I want to need to repent. So Matthew eleven six, 6, Jesus' response to John's disciples, he doesn't directly answer the question. He says, discern the kingdom, but watch this. Blessed is he who doesn't take offense at me. That word take offense means to desert or distrust a person that we ought to trust and obey. John, don't desert the person that you, can tr you know you can trust. Blessed is the person who doesn't desert me, who continues to trust. Here's my point. We're all going to face Herod's prison, that dark prison of our expectations. 
I thought I did all the right things. My wife never said this so candidly. I thought, you know, if you say this out loud, out loud in the room, uh, lightning is going to strike me. You know, I was like, Shh, don't say that out loud. You can think it in your heart, but don't say it out loud. As she held our son who died right before birth, and she said, if this, if this is what God does for people who are working for him, don't say that out loud. Well, the truth is, she was saying out loud what we often hear in our heart. Lord, I've done the right stuff, and life isn't working. And we stand in this dark place of confusion. We're in Herod's prison. God, I thought you were going to make it work. And it feels like I'm standing alone. I thought you were the one that was going to make it better. Blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at me. Now, I, I want to say something. If you, if, uh, these, we do post notes every week. On, on, on the website, I want you to feel free to grab them anytime, but if you are a note taker, I'm going to rattle through some passages really quickly, but I want to share something that was just absolutely startling to me this week. I've been meditating and reading through the servant songs of Isaiah, okay? So I'm, what I'm trying to say to you right now is that this, this issue of, you know, of wrestle is common to man, and I'm going to bring it home here in a minute that's going to might be, you, you want to open your Bible and say, is he really telling me the truth, okay? There are four servant songs in, in, the, uh, in, in Isaiah. One is on Isaiah 42. You're off, most of you are familiar with this one. A bruised reed he didn't crush or, a, you know, a, a dimly burning wick he didn't flicker out. It comes with a spirit of servanthood. And Matthew, Matthew acknowledges that about the spirit of Jesus and he refers to it, I believe, in Matthew, I think in Matthew 4. Um, Isaiah 49, it's another passage. And then uh, chapter 50, and then at the end of uh, 52 and 53. 53 is that, you know, suffering servant passage that many of us are familiar with. I referred to it here a little while ago. But I was meditating on 49 this week. Let, let, me, just, let me just open my Bible here. Because I was like, wait a minute, this is crazy. Um, God's people had come to the place where they began to recognize this was, this was a prophecy about the Messiah. Isaiah 42, that's going to be Jesus, man. That's what the servant of the Lord is going to be like. 53, most of us have heard that quoted many times, right? The suffering servant, 49. Okay, so 49. Um, He's mouth, it made my mouth like a sharp sword. Wait a minute, I see that somewhere else in the book of Revelation. Out of his mouth is this sharp sword. It's because he's declaring the truth. He's become the living word of God. All right, uh, in, in the shadow of his hand, he'll, he's concealed me. He's made me like a select aerial. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are the servant of, the, of Israel in whom I will show my glory. Verse 4, but I said, wait a minute, so these are like maybe this is I said. It's the servant of the Lord, so we're talking about Jesus. I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength in, for nothing in vanity. Push pause. What? Jesus, 
I thought I was the one that often says that before you. So, uh, by the way, before, uh, leave your, if you're there at verse 4, he says, Surely my justice is due with me and, and my reward with my God. So he's, he's identifying that his reward wasn't in his stuff but in the Lord. So my, my, here's what I wanna, want you to show off. I want, want you to see. Uh, Jesus, could it possibly be that you were saying something, that you, you felt like I've toiled in vain? Oh, wait a minute. Well, hang on a second. Let me just give you a couple of references. John 13, remember, he washes all the disciples' feet who are like sitting there saying, who's going to be the greatest dude in, in you know, Jesus' tribe? And he's like, okay, let me show you what this is about. He washes their feet, right? Gospel, I'm ta talking about the gospel, right? John 13, John 14. Three of his disciples, after he says, I've set you an example that you should do as I've done. Oh, I get it, Jesus. I get it. Read on in chapter 14. Guess what happens? Same setting. Philip comes up and says, show us the way. Where you're going. Jesus said, I've, how, how long am I going to be with you? I'm the way. Uh, Thomas comes and says, just show us the Father. <laughs> That'd be enough. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Then Judas comes and says, you know, if you would just show yourself to the world and quit being this secretive thing. So much so that when we see Jesus on the cross, he's quoting the Psalms 22. My God, have you, have you forsaken me? So what I'm trying to point to is this. If you hear that whisper in your own heart, in your own humanity, you're not alone. It's in the human condition. And here's where Jesus landed. Oh, my reward is my God. What, wait, wait a second. That was the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 1. And he says, I am going to be your great reward. It's me, Abraham. So, beloved, here we are in this prison. I've done the right stuff. Life isn't working. See, I, in my experience, um, I, there have been times in my life that I, I've, I think I could identify with John in the wilderness when I have felt absolute certainty about the revelation of God's kingdom in my life. Unquestionable times. Absolutely no doubt. One of them is in the very fact that we even have kids. But there's also times that have felt like I've been in Herod's prison. I thought this is supposed to come out and work out differently in heaven's leadership. Can I just say this? Is, this is what I've begun to surrender to, beloved. Heaven's leadership is not like ours in timing or practice, but its outcome, the leadership of heaven, its outcome is always about revealing heaven, the beauty and goodness and truth of heaven in my heart and in my life. I was reading something from N.T. Wright out of his book, Simply Jesus, this past week. He said, you know, God and Jesus don't do what they do by blasting through the opposition. 
They do what they do by working with the grain of the cosmos, by planting seeds that grow secretly, by calling humans, that's you and me, to be co-creators in revealing heaven upon the earth. So the kingdom of God, beloved, is not about the power of the sword, but about a heart that is surrendered towards heaven, revealing the beauty of God, the goodness of God, the truth of God, the love of God. That's restored hearts. Now, see, here's where we were. I'm identifying John, uh, John and Herod's prison there in Genesis 3. The, the, the beauty of the kingdom of God is that God has restored us through Genesis 2, the tree of life, communion and representation, relationship and representation with him. So, are you the one? So, let me quickly t uh, touch on two or three things I want us to, to notice and not miss. One is this, and I think I've already identified it. Go tell John to discern the kingdom. Discern the kingdom. So Jesus doesn't point to the power of the sword, but to the power of heaven to reveal life. The disorienting nature of the kingdom of God revealed upon the earth is that it is... Um, it's, again, it's opposite of this good versus evil. It's the revelation of life on earth, in sometimes in places we hadn't expected. Um, truth be told, we often want to read that plot into the gospel. And Jesus comes and he says his life, he gives his life in surrender and in love and forgiveness on the cross and the hungry and the thirsty find food and drink for their soul. The captive are set free. The poor have the good news proclaimed to them. Heaven's power restores and redeems and reclaims life every single time. Are you the one? So how do I answer that question? Look. Discern. Heaven. John, look for heaven. Um. And Jesus does something incredible for John, and I believe he does this for all of us if we hear the true gospel. You know, the good news that God is relating to you not on the basis of your sin and brokenness and failure, but on the basis of his love. Jesus said, go and tell John, look for heaven. Um. I want you to notice in verses 7 to 11, after his friends begin to leave, while they're still in his presence, Jesus speaks to the crowds. Oh, this is so good. John discerned heaven, but watch this. He doesn't just rebuke. This isn't a rebuke. He does not rebuke John. It's nowhere in the text. What are you asking that for, John? What's, what's wrong with you? In fact... What he says is, John, I see you. And, watch, ready? The thing he speaks over us, I know you. And he invites him to trust. Even to his faithful cousin who is feeling uncertain, there's no rebuke. Just an invitation to keep gazing in wonder. John, everything's about to change. 
The place of distance and delay is about to end. There's going to be a revelation of beauty and goodness and truth. John, I see you. I've seen your heart. I've seen your faithfulness. John, you ready for this? Watch this. Jesus tells this to the crowds so that his friends will hear and repeat to John that Jesus believed in who he knew him to be. And that he had done what he was called to do. And that he was the salt of the earth. He was Elijah that was to come. What's Jesus got to say about your questions? He says to you, I see you, and I know who you are, and I know your worth, and I love you. That's good news. All right, last word I want to say is this. I kind of began here, but I've been struck by verse Matthew 11, 11 many, many times. The least will be greater than the greatest man born of a woman. The least in the kingdom is going to be greater than him. And, you know, that can have all kinds of greatness tones add, added to it. Um, yeah, in my journey, I've often been had my mind and my heart filled with an imagination about, you know, what's the kingdom of God going to look like when it's revealed in my day? That means, man, it's finally going to break in. I'm finally going to have revival. I've read about revivals. This one's going to be even greater. When we see days that look like those days and even better. Part of that, kind of get stoked up. The longer I walk with Jesus, I'm becoming convinced that this is not about ever reaching a day when it looks like that, that I've heard about, or what might be in my imagination, that we have the dominant expression of truth in the culture. but that Jesus has the dominant expression of my life. That the kingdom is not measured by what the culture is proclaiming or identifying, but that is love actually present in me, in my bones? Have I actually surrendered? See, greatness is not measured by the size of the crowds that we stand in front of, but by the amount of love in our heart and the amount of love in my life for the least and the last. Put away all the other measuring sticks, guys. Are you the one? I want to summarize this. This is another pastor who's reading something he had written. We thought God would make our lives easy, and instead he calls us to live more deeply. We wanted God to eliminate our suffering and instead discovered God standing with us in the midst of our pain. We expected God to make us number one, but he called us to identify with the least, the last, and the lost. We wanted him to make us strong, but he's called us to discover his strength in our weakness. We hoped God would destroy our enemies, but he commanded us to love them. We wanted to be the leaders, but God called us to be the servants. Are you the one? 
or will I surrender to the one? Beloved, the arrival of God's kingdom is that transcendent reality when the life of heaven revealing beauty and goodness and truth breaks in. And it is not limited or contained by my expectations or measured by my ideas, but it reveals everything's changed. Heaven has come to earth because it has encountered my heart. And that's good news. Amen?